Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. This podcast brings together a group of autistic and non-autistic thinkers, academics and cinema lovers for discussions on films and TV programmes with a particular autistic interest. We look at the representation of autism, the ethics of performing autism, as well as where autistic expression may have been captured, sometimes inadvertently, by the movement of the camera and the use of sound and imagery. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemaautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discuss the 2002 comedy drama Punch Drunk Love, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. In this recording, you will hear the voices of Alex Widdowson, Georgia Kumari Bradburn, and David Hartley. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, and welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Um, my name is Alex Widdowson. I am a PhD student at Queen Mary on the Autism Through Cinema research group. Uh, and my research is about the ethics of representing autism as someone who is not autistic. Um, specifically through the practice of animated documentary. So we also have with us David Hartley and Georgia Bradburn. Uh, would you guys like to introduce yourselves? So I'm David Hartley, uh, newly minted as Dr. David Hartley, because I've just finished my PhD, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, so I did a creative writing PhD at the University of Manchester, which looked at, um, uh, partly was to do with writing a novel about autism, um, and was also partly about the, looking at representations of, autis, of autism um, in fantasy and sci-fi cinema and TV. Um, yeah, that's me. I'm Georgia. I, uh, I'm an undergraduate film student at Queen Mary. Um, and I, I have a blog uh, where I write about uh, autism and film it's called the autistic film critic um i am autistic and i have a huge interest in film and i'm also an occasional filmmaker myself um so i like to kind of marry those two things together quite a lot yeah that's me so um today we'll be talking about uh punch drunk love 2002 by paul thomas anderson director um obviously there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this. We're going to sort of assume that you've already seen the film. If not, maybe you should go away and watch the film before you listen to this. Georgia, you proposed this film as a topic for discussion. Would you mind introducing it and sort of giving us some context before they, we actually engage in a three-way discussion? Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, Punch During Love is, um, I, don't, I can't remember the actual number, but it's one... Um, is way into Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography and it's kind of a moment where he switches from one sort of style uh, to another, maybe apart from Magnolia, but it, it's it's his more kind of overtly art house film. Um, and it's also um, quite significant because it stars Adam Sandler in quite a, a huge role shift 
Um, I think Paul Thomas Anderson said in an interview uh, during press for Magnolia that he wanted to, the two actors he wanted to work with are Adam Sandler and Daniel Day-Lewis, which obviously he did go on to work with. Um, but everyone was kind of very shocked because, you know, they're two completely different uh, actors and uh, come from completely different uh, schools of acting. But um, there's a lot of unique things about Punch Drunk Love that I really, I really love. And I'm also have, you know, a lot of questions about as well, because it's, it, it's, there's a lot to think about. Um, so in terms of, uh, oh, I'll do like a, a brief overview of the, what the, the film and what it's about. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's about Barry Egan, who's played by Sandler, and he is a small business owner. Um, various sites describe him as socially awkward, um, a abused by his sisters into having quite a low self-esteem and not being able to kind of find love or um, have kind of control over his life. And you see these sisters kind of following him around and bugging him and making his life hell, basically. Um, and uh, through uh, his sisters, he meets um, a girl called Lena, who's played by Emily Watson, who is his main love interest and sort of the love of his life. And at the same time, he's entangled in uh, a, a, a situation of fraud He's a scam essentially because he he calls a uh, a phone sex hotline and they uh, try to scam him out of money. So at the same time as he's pursuing this love interest, he's having to deal with quite a traumatic situation, and it shows him kind of um, attaining that love and realizing he can love, and then acting on that power to um, to kind of defeat that antagonist. Um, the boss is played by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is incredible, I think. I love him in every single role he's done. He's one of my favourite actors. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting because it, it plays on the tropes of the rom-com film. And from my perspective and I, I don't I, it could be quite problematic to suggest this because obviously Paul Thomas Anderson isn't openly neurodivergent not openly autistic or you know deals with themes of autism but from my point of view it it, it reworks that rom-com trope to fit a uh, neurodivergent framework so it kind of it kind of fits a different frame of mind. Um, and also another thing I want to mention is a lot of um, things written about this film um, talk about the debate of whether Barry himself is autistic or not. And I think this is interesting because I'm not, I've never been a fan of diagnosing characters. Um, I, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification and quite problematic to kind of do the whole weird character equals autistic character. Um, but I, I think from my point of view, you know, as an autistic spectator, there's a lot of things that that strike a chord with me. I, th I think above all else, he's, you know, he's just a person who can't quite figure out how to compute or how to fit with society. And in the end, he doesn't have to do that in order to survive. And I think, I think interesting 
um, way to frame an autistic character, whether he is autistic or not. More than anything, though, I think it, I think it, to an extent it is counterproductive to constantly debate whether the character is autistic or not, because um, I think the cinematic elements of the film create like a sense of discord with uh, a neurotypical reality. So it's the way that the film is shot and, and the sound recording and the details in the sound, I think are what really creates this sense of you, the spectator, being autistic or living, you know, in an autistic person's mind. At least that's what how it is from my perspective. Again, I, you know, I'm interested to hear what other people think. Um, but there's so many elements, such as like the kind of soundscape with all the percussion instruments, um, and the perceiving of neurotypical behavior into the constant bugging of the sisters. Um I know um, the cinematographer Ellswit used um, like a, a high contrast film um, to kind of make uh, the shadows and the lights stand out. So it's very overwhelming to watch at points. Um, and also as well, the use of color. The film is sort of punctuated with these kind of washes of color. And it's, 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 it's quite, it's quite an odd, it, it comes at quite odd moments, but um it, yeah, it gives the film kind of like an arc, and um, yeah, it it's just very beautifully made. Um, yeah, so that's, it's it's a film that I really like, um, and I probably should also mention that I I uh, I dressed me and my flatmates went as Adam Sandler characters for Halloween. I dressed as Barry, <laughs> and ironically, uh, I kind of had a bit of a meltdown. And <laughs> in that costume, so you know, life imitates art. Um, just thought <laughs> that was worth mentioning. Anyway, yeah, I'm interested to hear what other people think. I wish I'd been at that party. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> I'm not sure which Adam Sandler I'd have gone as. I might have gone as um, his latest um, uh, interesting turn, which was that uh, when he was um, played a I can't remember the character's name, but in Uncut Gems, when he. Uh, spends his whole the whole film running around trying to um uh get that rock with all the diamonds in it anyway <laughs> that's a different film another film that i really loved uh, no i i thought that everything you just said then georgia was um really spot on that I, I think that you're absolutely right punch drunk love is actually interesting for me i've only fairly recently come to it i'd never seen it before and i watched it a few months ago knowing that it had been sort of attached to autism in many ways and i just was completely overwhelmed by it i thought it was an absolutely magical film um and um i was a fan of paul thomas anderson before but i just never for whatever reason had never seen punch drunk love and yeah you're absolutely right and absolutely spot on it was just this kind of um almost overwhelmingly beautiful um rom-com-ish sort of postmodern rom-com love story from a very neurodivergent point of view and the film acts as a in a neurodivergent way really in a kind of autistic way um and i thought that that was marvelous and particularly in regards to the fact that it is a love film it is a it is a a love story um which i feel is something that's quite rare when attached to autism i just i feel as if like most autism stories don't tend to be rom-coms or don't tend to be about love i mean there are some 
I think of that there's that film Adam, for example, um, which I was reminded of, um, which I don't think is a particularly good film. But there was a, there's this feeling here that this was really about an outburst of emotion and it was about passion and it was about, um, uh, you know, falling. It was about that kind of magical um, love at first sight idea. Um, what's quite interesting for me is that Lena, his, his eventual girlfriend, played by Emily Watson, seems to have already already decided that she really likes him from a photograph. I mean, she doesn't even meet him and she's uh, she's seen a photograph of him with all of his sisters. And for some reason, and it's never really explained why, but that's that's for her is is the trigger towards um, A, meeting him and then B, falling for him. And all the way through watching it again, I watched it again last night, all the way through watching it again last night, I thought, why does she like him? What, what is it? It's so mysterious and interesting that she um, falls for Barry and and Anderson never really gives us a, um, a, a sort of reason necessarily, or uh, makes it clear why she is, uh, why she compared to everybody else around him, or compared to his co-workers and his sisters and everyone else that he encounters, um, and the people involved with the scam. They all seem to be a bit uh, kind of they frown around him, they're a bit distance around him, they don't seem to understand him or get him. And yet Lena seems to get him immediately and and just finds him wonderful. Um, and that for me was really interesting and really good. And I kind of wondered, um, I, yeah, I kept asking myself this question, why does Lena like him? Why does Lena fall for him? What's the reason? Why? What is she seeing in him um, that, that she really likes? And part of me started to think, well, perhaps Lena also is neurodivergent perhaps she's found a kind of kindred spirit here and as soon as I started thinking about it as two neurodivergent people not necessarily autistic as you say Georgia it's not um helpful necessarily to sort of pin down autism on, on a character if that's never been particularly intended um but there's certainly a, a, a an air of neurodivergence about both of them certainly about Adam Sandler's character Barry but then in some ways it was also with Lena as well. And so for me, it became a love story between two people who are um, who are a little bit outside of their society, a little bit outside of their circles, perhaps, who perhaps struggle a little bit to connect with the world, um, finding each other and just having this almost fairy tale, almost like kind of magical um, relationship. Um, all framed with this whirling and wild and energetic camera work and the colours and the, the the sort of um, very eclectic music um, and it's very you know this very um, highly driven energetic film um, that fits really snugly within ninety minutes and it's just uh, is almost breathlessly um, gripping and 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 uh, never, you know, never, never slows down. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think Punch Drunk Love is the right title for it because there's this beautiful energetic whirlwind of, of, of cr crazy romance in a way, um, which is really infectious um, and really lovely to see in connection with um, stories that I think are about two neurodivergent people really, um, yeah. I think it's very, um, I think it's interesting to, to frame Lena as neurodivergent as well. It didn't, that didn't strike me when I was watching the film. She 
seem to me to be presented by um, Paul Thomas Anderson as this sort of love interest prop who doesn't seem to be going through an arc of her own, but sort of creates an environment for which um, Barry can sort of experience a redemptive growth arc. Um, and, I, and I think one thing that's really interesting is the harmonium that's sort of left on the street that appears at the moment when she arrives as well. And he seems to come back to this harmonium throughout the narrative as a sort of therapeutic escape moment. And, you know, you just think they constantly are explaining that it's not a piano, but um, I don't think they actually ever explain that it is a harmonium or label it so clearly, but the sort of word association links it to harmony and sort of the joining of two melodic uh, paths. So I think it's like this, uh, you know, very, very strong symbol that sort of uh, then ends up, I think it's sort of center place in his new apartment or his apartment by the end of the film. And so, you know, it's very much a, a story of Barry finding a new way of being in the world in partnership with Lena. Um, I mean, the other thing I was quite interested in was this idea of uh, sort of sensory overload. I tried to sit down and watch the film with my partner uh, maybe a year ago, and she just couldn't handle it. She found it incredibly stressful. And we only made it about 30 minutes into the film. I'd seen it before and was quite excited to watch it again, but uh, it just was not for her. And the music in particular uh, just ramped up the stress for her. Um, but yeah, for me, it's something I can really identify with um, through my own sort of neuro neurodivergent um, experience. I mean, I mean, personally, I'm a sort of waver between talking about this publicly and talking about it privately, but at the moment I'm feeling very public about it. So we're really talking about schizoaffective disorder, a uh, sort of a hybrid of schizophrenia and uh, um, bipolar disorder, but somehow easier to manage them both. And a lot of those experiences uh, sort of relate to a sense of intensity of life and a sort of momentum that seems out of your own control, but you learn to ride it very carefully, like a sort of surfer. And occasionally you fall off, but then you just get back up on the board again. Um, and it felt very much like, I mean, you guys may see it through the framework of uh, uh, autism possibly, but for me, it, it felt very uh, in line with my sort of uh, experiences of a mood disorder and the sort of rage and frustration that comes with not quite being in control of yourself and trying desperately to find systems of organizing your life so that you can have solid parameters within which to exist. So the, you know, latching onto this scheme for for buying sort of dessert cups to get air miles, um, recognizing the value of that when everybody else around you thinks of it as absurd. Well, that to me feels like this sort of system, this sort of, this symbol of control and uh, accomplishment that uh, is, uh, you know, specifically logical to Barry's universe, but, um, you know, clearly is, 
inexplicable to every single other character, um, except for maybe uh, Emily Watson, uh, Lena. Um, yeah, and you know the moments of rage in the film. I come from a large family as well, um, and my two siblings, uh, who are not neurodiverse, well. Actually, that's not going to, I don't know if they are, maybe they are. Um, but I, I got, I've got three siblings. Uh, one of them has Down syndrome and two of them uh, uh, do not have Down syndrome, but also have an ability to put me in my place like no one else in the world. And I'm instantly reverted to a prepubescent stage whenever we interact, interact. And um, I feel like, I could really identify identify with some of the the sort of the the, breath, the sort of effortlessness that the family members put into tormenting him. Um, I don't necessarily feel as victimized ever as Barry, but that tension and the anticipation of meeting your family, I think, is uh, something I can really identify with. So, um, you know, to me, it seems quite reasonable. <laughs> That it would drive you up the wall, um, being in that scenario, um, and you know this was shot in what the uh, two thousand one released in two thousand two probably, um, where sort of casual homophobia was rife, and there's like a sort of association between the idea of being gay and somehow being sort of uh, a public. Uh, publicly accepted version of otherness that was an insult for heterosexuals and it I think it plays into this uh, double bind where in which either you accept this identity label that doesn't match you uh, or you protest and then the protest can be interpreted as evidence and it was a sort of game that was played in every school playground that I've ever uh, entered into. And um, I think Paul Thomas Anderson really has a really strong grasp of the frigidity of masculinity in this film and just how easily that can overblow into rage and impotent rage. But I think what's really impressive is the sort of consolidation of all of these traits um that sort of translate uh barry's impotent rage into decisiveness and action when this uh emily watson figure gives him a sort of motivation to really defend something he doesn't really stand up for himself at all until she is impacted by the the group of sort of thugs attacking them and then suddenly he switches into a very decisive almost action hero style um, uh, defender of honor. So um, yeah, it's the sort of this, this sort of toxic and harmful um, inexpressiveness of masculinity that is somehow captured and transformed through a sort of network of female attention uh, into something that has productivity or value it's a it's quite a complex negotiation between neurodiversity um sexuality and gender norms um 
that gives this a very powerful strength, uh, sort of sense of direction and growth within the film. Yeah, I was I was uh, finding it interesting that you were talking about how, like, you know, it it speaks to different people very personally and and not just from from an artistic point of view. And I think that's important because I think it is an overgeneralization to say this film, you know, deals with autism. I think it 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 deals with those people who are trying to negotiate with um, um, neurotypical society and people who who don't quite um connect with it and and you know just don't quite fit into the puzzle um and it provides you know a, a you know a it not provides because this film doesn't provide anything but it, it it demonstrates that kind of possibility for for love and for moments of euphoria moments of passion moments of instability you know a fully kind of fledged fully rounded character that isn't confined to just being you know neurotypical and it it definitely does kind of uh investigate uh, all three things like gender and um sexuality neurodiversity um in a way that is more complex than I think a lot of films that are, you know, about autism. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of things to discuss about that. Uh, one thing that I, I noticed the first time I was watching it is the use of kind of spaces, specifically um, Barry's office in the warehouse. So it was kind of like this little glass room that's somehow in the middle of a warehouse. And there's the really intense scene. And I really relate, Alex, to how um, your partner found it really overwhelming because that scene where his sister brings Lena to his work and they're all kind of talking and shouting over each other. And then in the background, all the trucks are kind of crashing into each other and all the boxes are falling. Um, And there's the moment where Lena's like, do you want to go and check that? And he's like, it's fine. (laughs) It's all right. and it's just the overlapping of sounds causes so much stress because I think there are those moments when you're in public or if so many people are talking to you at once, so many things are going wrong, but you still kind of maybe want to impress someone or maintain a sense of normalcy. And you do what you can to do that. Barry's office to me is like kind of an oasis of, um, it's just his own space where he can regulate things within that um, chaotic warehouse environment. And the thing about the harmonium, it reminded me of like stimming because he he repeatedly goes to the harmonium, like you, like you say, to have those kind of moments of tranquility and just to, you know, bring himself back to himself. Um yeah, so the office to me is kind of his space where he has control. Um, and I found it interesting. That scene specifically, I, I, I always revisit, I think, because it's one of the best representations of sensory overload I think I've seen in film not necessarily specific to autism it's just a sensory overload in general with anxiety and um it's yeah 
it's it's incredibly done. I I it's quite exemplary. I always go back to it and say this is a really good example of how these elements come together. Um, <clears throat> and I want to just mention the the sisters again because I mean I I'm an only child, so I've not come from that uh, loud um, environment with loads of siblings. But the the way that the con- the sisters constantly call him and bug him is quite surreal. It doesn't feel quite natural. And so to me, it's it's sort of they're, they're the more strange, out-of-place part of the film because I think we do see it from, from Barry's, uh, like, framework of consciousness, his, his own... Um, we're aligned with him quite closely. So everything else that is um, perceived as normal or neurotypical is, is just very surreal and... Um, yeah, um, traumatic actually. Um, yeah. No, I, I just wanted to pick up on that because I think there is a, 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 a sort of um, a thread or a seam, I guess, in this film of of unreality and of the of almost kind of magic and fantasy and and, and absurdity um, all the way through. But I think that. What's interesting for me, particularly about the the opening, which is which is almost really a kind of pre-title sequence because you don't actually get the title Punch Drunk Love until a few minutes in, um, and you get this really quite remarkable opening scene, which in which Barry you first see him sort of in the corner of the um, warehouse on his desk um, on the phone um, talking about this this. Um, Air Miles um, promotion that he's that he's going to be obsessed with all the way through the film, and then he goes outside. He hears noises and he goes outside, and then he sees a car crash, which is never um, addressed again. It's just this 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 car has a blowout, and the car flips down the road, and he kind of gets kind of worried and goes, "Oh, well, what was that?" Then a truck arrives and puts the harmonium down, and then he goes back to his office. Then Lena comes. And then he goes and gets the the um, harmonium, rescuing it from being knocked over by a truck. And then he takes it back to his his office. And it's all very, again, it's another sort of, it's not quite as intense as that scene you were talking about, Georgie, which I agree is a, a remarkable and incredible scene. But there's still a sort of strangeness to it and, a, and an absurdity to it. But I think what that does for us as viewers is that it it's really skillfully done. And it's it's really quite amazing, I think. It sort of positions us firstly with Barry. It shows us that the world is not quite real. It's not quite going to conform to our expectations. And by doing that, I think that that's what helps put us in or puts the viewer in a kind of neurodivergent frame of mind, possibly um, connected to the ways in which Barry sees the world. And I think that... um, the the various simple things that Barry does in that in that opening scene, including that conversation, that quite funny conversation he has on the phone, the perhaps quite peculiar reaction he has to the car crash, and then the interaction with Lena and the interaction with the harmonium, they give us a sense of what Barry's priorities are, what how he acts in the world, and how he's how he's finding it difficult to situate himself in that world, and by showing us all of that before the title sequence comes on, we get that sense of like, okay, this is the position we are in as viewers. And then from that point on, 
it's like it's the neurotypical world that then becomes the absurd other the thing that is ridiculous the one thing that i noticed noted down um so this was my second viewing of it in 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 space of about three months um last night so i was looking and i was looking watching it very closely and there's lots of lovely really lovely little tiny details um this is a film that is rich with tiny little blink and you miss them details one of my favorites was when barry goes to the party that his sisters invite him to and he's gone in and he's, he's sort of very hesitant about going in. He comes in and out of the door and he goes in and they, they overwhelm him and they're, they're sort of being overly affectionate but also quite horrible to him. And he's got this little box, which is a cake, and he, he, he one of his sisters says, oh, you brought a cake. Oh, we've already got a cake, and puts the cake down. And then the, the scene cuts to the next shot and it doesn't show you straight on. It doesn't show you the cake, but the cake you can see the cake there on the at the side, and it's this huge, really elaborate, over the top, stupid cake. But it's not like Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't focus on the cake. He doesn't give you a shot of the cake, looking at the cake. It's just there, and you just see Barry glance at it, just just gently, just sort of goes, "Oh yeah, you've got a cake," and nothing is made of this. But it's just one of those brilliant little absurd neurotypical details that's just in that scene that if you're tuned into the way that Barry thinks and tuned into the way that the film wants you to think in this neurodivergent fashion then it's one of those little things that you can just notice and just be like yeah that is ridiculous isn't it there is there is absurdity in this kind of party scenario and this situation and the way in which we interact and our relationships with each other and so on and so forth and it's it's just it's wonderful and there's loads of those little moments throughout um and yeah, and that would be the other thing I wanted to say was about the magic of it and the fantasy of it and the unreality of it. There are, there's something fairy tale a little bit about this as well. I'm thinking particularly of the moment when Barry goes to Miami and he's um, on the phone while that um, street carnival is happening around him, a kind of payphone, and he's trying to get through to Lena. And then when he does eventually get through to her, suddenly the light in the um, payphone just comes on and this is kind of like magical sort of ding so there's something there's a there's a thread in throughout this film of of the fantastical of the unreal which is is not hammed up but is always there and there's something quite i i don't, I don't know there's something quite sort of fun and lovely about that i think um in a way that i can't really quite put my finger on but it's to do with Barry's perception of the world. It's to do with neurotypicality being absurd and strange, um, which lends the film this kind of um, atypical, but also quite magical air, I think. Um, I was thinking about the sort of perceptions of um, uh, like values that are promoted within this film. So we have the sort of hero's arc, we have the um, a supporting woman uh, role, but we also have like the family and the villains. And I was interested in what the villains sort of represent. So uh, Barry calls this sort of sex line. And when he does call, it's actually quite a deeply unsexy in exchange between the two of them. He really seems to be just a, wants to talk to someone and has no interest in... Um, doesn't seem to have much interest in getting his rocks off at the time. But um, through this in exchange where the, the phone operator is highly manipulative, 
ex uh, extracting his like social security number and uh, credit card details. She also um, sort of identifies uh, the language that Barry has adopted of business. And so he uses the word, he's, he's talking about his relative success, says he's, you know, he thinks he's getting there, he's looking to diversify. And this for the, um, um, the phone operator sort of is a stereotypical signal of um, sort of wealth and business acumen. And so we have this, this theme of um, manipulation. We have this theme of stereotyping. And then when we get to Philip Seymour Hoffman in those confrontations with um, Adam Sandler or Barry, um, we have this sort of shaming uh, of his deviant behavior as a pervert. And so um, I think all of these characteristics are sort of uh, build up to um, behaviors that are also always in opposition to a neurodivergent and neurodiversity um, sort of ethos, the idea of uh, deviating from norms, the idea of uh, uh, being deceptive about one's identity or, or um, extracting and manipulating people. Um, and um, yeah, there's, there's, I think these, these qualities of the villains are very important in opposition to Barry as this sort of quite honor-focused individual to the point where he, he drives all the way to, is it Utah or, or um, yeah, I think it might be Utah where, he, where the mattress sort of seller is based who runs this scam and just in order to have a face-to-face -face meeting with him in order to tell him really you have to stop otherwise you know there's going to be physical consequences that i will administer and there's no involvement of the police it's very much a sort of system of honor and and direct uh, communication resolving issues one-to-one uh, -one rather than sort of relying on systems of power that maybe Barry doesn't really feel like he can trust. So yeah, I was just, and then, you know, the, the sisters world who are also sort of heart, they're sort of frenemies in the, um, in the narrative. They, you know, at one point, um, Lena uh, agrees with one of the sisters that, oh, oh well, um, yeah, Barry is weird. Maybe you were right. And she's like, no, you can't say that. He's my brother. I mean, I can say that about him, but you can't. And so there's this um, ambivalence in her about how to actually think of her brother and, and how other people should be allowed to think about him. So they're sort of on the threshold and there's clearly a lot of concern and interest in his future, but there's also a lot of pressure to adhere to all these norms, um, particularly romantic norms. and um, and just the sort of vastly complex political landscape of their group interactions as a family, I think is, is quite significant. But I think one thing that really stands out is the way that Barry uh, confesses to the uh, brother-in-law, who is a dentist, uh, that he is in need of psychiatric support or something like that. And... Uh, the dentist's brother-in-law promises not to say anything to anyone, but it, it almost immediately unravels that, yes, they spoke behind his back and he betrayed his word. So all these 
uh, like values and qualities that are being are being raised in the uh, villains or the frenemies within the um, narrative, I think are very important um, traits that show strong contrast with uh, the idea of sort of commu communicating directly and saying what you mean, being someone who sticks to their words, someone who is uh, um, honorable, won't betray people. You know, these are all, uh, I mean, they are actually, uh, oh yeah, and even the idea of relying on stereotypes is sort of promoted as a villainous act. So um, I think that has some relevance to the sort of framing of this film as a sort of autistic aesthetic. Yeah, um, I, I definitely uh, I agree with the point of how everything is kind of in opposition to him and challenging him, because it does feel like the other characters, maybe everyone apart from Lena and um, the people he works with in the in the warehouse, um, are con are like taking advantage of him because they kind of identify his weakness especially with the um, the scam people because I think through that phone sex hotline they they identified that he is very vulnerable and so from there they'll you know guilt him into getting money and then they identified it's really easy to take advantage of him and the sisters as well they can treat him badly because at the end of the day it doesn't matter because he is who he is and personally I, I do feel like the point the the resolution of the film is, him recognizing his power and control over his life, um, which which resonates with me because it, it is easy to feel infantilized by people who take care of you or um, supposedly, you know, want to look after you in moments of vulnerability. Um, and yeah, it doesn't infantilize in that way it does the opposite it kind of um gives him that power and I, another thing i wanted to pick up on uh what you said david about the kind of little little details that kind of stand out because there's one that i really like but i'm still very confused about and i don't know if other people notice but um in the one of the first supermarket scenes <clears throat> And you see him kind of um, walking through the store, but just down the aisle, you see a flash of red. Um, and as he's walking through the store, you see the flash of red following him, and that's Lena. And she's following him before she has that second meeting. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. I did, and I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I didn't notice that first time around, but I did last night when I was watching it. I actually... Um, I actually almost did a sort of cinematic double take on it because I just it got past that that moment in that scene and I thought, hold on, was that her in the background there? Go back to it. And yeah, it's this beautiful, remarkable moment where she's not met him for she's met him once in the opening scene, but she hasn't met him again since. And he's wandering around in the supermarket picking up his um his uh, puddings that he ends up buying um and muttering to himself and sort of you know in his in his own little world i guess and and yeah, there is this figure in the background this like um who never comes into focus but is wearing that bright sort of orangey red uh, dress that Lena wears and uh there's a moment where he sort of sees her he sort of looks back 
but the the the, fo- the the camera doesn't pull focus on the, that background, so it doesn't reveal her, and she the figure just walks away. And I sort of thought, yeah, that is Lena. So I was looking it up online last night and thinking, has anybody else noticed this? And and, and you know, fans have seen this and have commented on it, and it's it's there on Reddit and so on. Um, but it's a, again, it's a there's be- another beautiful little detail, which also sort of weirdly sort of changes quite a lot of the meaning of the film in some ways because if that is her what is she doing there is she following him um is she sort of is there almost another narrative going on with lena that we're not necessarily party to where she is she's become obsessed with him or she's become really interested in him or again like i said earlier is finding has found a kind of kindred spirit in him and therefore that's that's part of why what i was uh, mentioning before about possibly her being a, a sort of quietly neurodivergent is because she also seems to be yeah she seems to be in her own world in some respects and she seems to be um she seems to be much more in control of herself compared to barry but like um clearly she's got an interest in him that is that is peculiar and interesting and, and, and unusual and yeah this beautiful little hint that she's actually maybe knows more about him than he realizes or that they we realize because she may well be sort of pursuing him or following him or just intrigued by him not in a not in a difficult way but in a kind of quite quite romantic way as romantic as you can be when you're <laughs> stalking someone i suppose um but yeah i did notice that and it was really i thought it was really interesting um one of the th- thing I, I wanted to to bring up was some of the there's quite a lot of like uh, curious visual motifs throughout um this film and one of the ones that i wrote down i don't know how people feel about this or what people think about this i just wrote down the words barry's shoulders because there are a lot of shots um of barry from right behind him um that are either following him or are just sort of sitting just right behind his shoulders so he's framed in a kind of a close-up but it's the back of his head and his shoulders and he's always wearing that blue suit he was wearing that blue suit all the way through and that blue suit gives him this kind of quite straight shoulder cut and I don't know it just struck me as uh, something that was quite interesting it was just seemed to be a visual motif that Anderson kept coming back to and I was trying to think of well why did he why does he keep showing Barry from that from that point of view and for me it felt like it was a kind of visual representation of the sort of constant pressures of the world almost being constantly there right behind him all the time looking at him like he's being looked at like he's being watched constantly that he's always got tension in his shoulders that he's always um just constantly has to be on guard all the time um about environmental noises or about weird social things that he can't quite grasp or about his sisters bugging him and ringing him constantly on the phone and checking in him on all, checking in on him all the time or even like the pressures to conform to something like having a romantic relationship or going on a holiday or um whatever it is that anyone seems to think he needs to do constantly and i just thought that that there was that constant um uh regular return to that position right behind him uh which i really liked and there was one moment in the uh, the uh, i think it's in the opening sequence just before the um the titles come on where he's adam sandler does this really strange kind of movement where he's sort of moving backwards and moving his shoulders to the side and um sort of pivoting if you like um as he's backing out of his office and away from the harmonium and talking and 
and for me that gave me I don't know it sort of it sort of presented this idea of yeah this constant idea of being followed being watched of having the world being pressed down upon you or, or always lurking right behind you all the time and you're always constantly having to be on guard um I thought it was really interesting um uh very simple visual motif but something that, that I thought was really effective um and, and and Adam Sandler just seems to have very I don't know Adam Sandler does all of his acting through his shoulders I think <laughs> and uh, I think he's really interesting in that regard um and there was something else I just wanted to mention but I've forgotten what it is now um yeah, I'll stick with Barry's shoulders for now. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, just, just really, really curious. Okay, I, okay, this is what I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask what are people's opinions of the final line of the of the film? So the very last thing that happens is that Barry has reunited with Lena. Um, she's had a she's got quite upset with him because he left her in the hospital. Um, but he's come all the way back and he's brought the harmonium round to her flat. They then sort of reunite and they kiss and they hug and they, everything seems okay. And then we get this curious sequence, curious scene where we're back in the warehouse again. And uh, the Lena walks in and she just, uh, she, she walks through the, the warehouse and Barry's there sitting at the harmonium and playing the harmonium. She hugs him from behind on his shoulders and says, so here we go. And then that's it. That's the end. And I thought that's a really curious way of ending it. And I wasn't, um, I, would, I was interested to see what other people thought about that, what that, what that meant for people. When I, I took it as a, um, it's time for the sort of happily ever after narrative that can never be put into a film like, um, there's so much in the film that suggests that a relationship with Barry might be full of ups and downs and turbulences and excitement and uh, conflict, or just, you know, it seems from our experience, chaos sort of circles around him in the way that Anderson has sort of organized the film. And so it seems like a bold step to embark on this um, uh, loving relationship um, when in relative perspectives uh, Lena seems to have less struggle in the world than Barry does um, but clearly I think you know her attitude towards him in the film uh, suggests that she has great empathy and understanding with some of his frustrations to the point where she's happy to just accept uh, the fact that he um, smashed up a toilet in a restaurant and is not, uh, it, it's not a sort of red flag for her in a sense. It's just sort of, yeah, that stuff happens. That's horrible sort of experience. So to me, it, it felt like, okay, it's happily ever after, but we know it's not as simple as that. And it's sort of an acknowledgement of the framework of a traditional, um, romantic comedy arc. That's how it seemed to me. I think that's a really good point especially because what, with a lot of rom-com films, you get to the end and you kind of, because it's a happy ending, you make the assumption that, you know, it is happily ever after and nothing nothing ever bad is going to happen to these characters again. When that's not, not the reality, it's a completely, you, you kind of end it before they really start their relationship. That's a completely separate narrative for them. It's a completely separate, because it will, will have its own conflicts and its own difficulties because of the nature of, of who Barry is. Um, and that's not something that's avoided 
which I think is good. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. It's like a moment of acknowledgement that um, it's it's not necessarily a happily ever after, but it you know it can be. You know, um, not everything has to be this perfect fairy tale fantasy that their relationship seems to be presented with presented as it's like a fairy tale romance in the midst of kind of everything's going wrong it's almost as if it's almost as if they're saying that um actual true love actual um the actual re- real version of the fairy tale ending is that love is complicated and that relationships are complicated and they continue they will be and some you know one member of it or yeah, an individual member of a relationship may need more support than the other, or the other might be in a role of support in some way. Um, and But that actually love survives all of that and helps it to thrive rather than the opposite, which is just the two beautiful people get get their fairy tale ending and live happily ever after, which is, as you say, Georgia, completely unreal. <clears throat> and um, And in some ways, quite a dangerous fantasy to um to abide by as well um and to buy into and yet quite a lot of western narratives um present that as an ending and um and it is a fantasy that we buy into that perhaps we shouldn't because it doesn't reflect reality and therefore we put too much pressure on ourselves to have successful relationships that are always constantly happy and constantly loving and constantly um perfect um and actually the reverse is true it's it's a lot more it takes a lot more work it's a lot more chaotic and it's a lot more intense and but that shouldn't mean that people like Barry who perhaps have a lot of trauma in their life or have anger management issues or have um uh, obsessions or difficulties in in the world that doesn't mean that those people shouldn't have love you know and meaningful relationships with others um and i think yeah i think you're right i think that the ending does um does suggest that in a really in a really neat way i think i think you you said something there that um sort of triggered a thought for me which is that you know neurodivergent people deserve love as well but um we've spent most of this discussion framing Emma Watson's character um, as neurodivergent herself, even though we don't really have that much access to her inner thoughts or her narrative. She's quite um, static in many ways in the, in the narrative progression. And I'm interested in the sort of... Uh, <laughs> the sort of problematics of uh, different groups sort of mm, coupling up essentially. So, you know, if you watch um, uh, Love on the Spectrum, the Netflix sort of reality TV show, it's all about setting up autistic people with other autistic people to hopefully spark uh, romantic relationships. And is there something problematic about uh us feeling comfortable or people feeling comfortable with uh neurodivergent people dating neurodivergent people um as opposed to sort of dating neurotypical people and i wonder if there was that temptation to sort of couple up 
like and like emerge within our own conversation here when we have very little to go on for um, uh, Lena's character. You know, she could just have a very impressive capacity for patience and empathy as opposed to um, any uh, sort of um, specific form of uh, cognitive difference. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just going to respond to that and just say, no, that's very true. And um, uh, yeah, of course, we can't really fully claim uh, Lena is neurodivergent because um, we don't know enough about her. Um, uh, she certainly is, in a, in a curious way, she's certainly a, a sort of slightly othered figure in the, in the film, partly because she's English, I think, in a way as well, because she, she, her accent really makes her stand out. Um, compared to everybody else. Um, and the fact that we just don't really know much about her makes her a bit strange and a bit unusual um, in that regard. But no, you're, that, I mean, that's a really good point, Alex, about uh, uh, about our sort of societal expectations about who couples up with who, and um, that in some ways, maybe, maybe societally speaking, we feel more comfortable when like matches with like or with neurotype matches with neurotype, um, which is of course not, not, the, not the correct thing um, to presume and also possibly not what this film is um, suggesting and and it's yeah it's it, I, I think it's interesting either way really to think of Lena as potentially neurodivergent uh, or as neurotypical but not part of the or the, I don't know there's something about her that she doesn't seem to exist in the same space uh, or same world as the sisters or as the villains uh, or um she just seems to be this this curious other figure and it, you might be right that she is like kind of just has a lot of empathy she she just has um she just gets barry or she just i don't know she just seems to connect with him in in a in a in a way that's not revealed it's a way as a way that's not um explored but in a way that i didn't necessarily want to be explored i quite like the idea that she just sees something in him um yeah i don't know it's an interesting point though uh, yeah i think we could ask the question of if we if we're saying either she has uh if virgin or she just has like, as you say, Alex, like a great capacity for patience and empathy. Are we saying that having that much patience and empathy as a person makes you the other, makes you neurodivergent? Which, which I mean, is a reasonable thing to think because I think a, a lot of people aren't that patient and a lot of people who we encounter in our lives are not like that. But I think because in my head, I've kind of been trying to think about who she is and if she is neurodivergent or not. And I think I've gotten to a point where it's like, I don't know if I, if we need to, because do we have to put her as that person in order for her to care for him? Is, is a neurotypical person who has that amount of strength and that empathy? automatically not a neurotypical person um again reasonable to ask um and there are kind of moments that hint to her not quite fitting that mold that the sisters are part of 
um, she is a bit strange and a bit stalkerish. <laughs> but again, that doesn't that weird doesn't equal autistic or neurodivergent. I think that's really important. Um, and she could just be a person who also has interests and obsessions, which is you know is true of everyone. Um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to debate whether that is part of her character but i i do feel it's it's a deliberate decision on pta's part to not give her character any information apart from the fact that she travels a lot she travels a lot and she knows his sister um and i'm i'm trying to get my head around a more deeper reason why that is but I, I guess it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because you you have this. Um, she's able to to care for him. She has that capacity, um, whether she's neurodivergent or not, and that shouldn't have to push her into one category. I don't think. And yet she's never like tokenistic either, is she? She's she she feels like a fully rounded character. She feels like she has a world, and she feels. She doesn't feel just, for me, she doesn't feel two-dimensional or just plonked in there. She feels rounded and, and correct. And I think it is the small moments that she has. There's that one moment where she um, he leaves and then she she rings the um, concierge and says, and gets to put him on the phone and says to him, um, I just wanted to let you know that I really wanted to kiss you at that moment when we just departed then, and I didn't, um, and I, I wanted you to let you know that I, I wanted to. And that, not, not, that's, that's quite a sort of bold and brave move to make, and it's not something that, sh that necessarily, certainly something I wouldn't, wouldn't have the bravery to do. And it's, um, but there's like little moments like that all the way through. There's a bit where she asks if she can come home with him after they've been to Miami, and then she asks him, is it okay to ask that? So there's little tiny little, and I think it's those little tiny little things that that give her a roundedness. I think. Well, I was Sorry. I was very interested in this idea that um, Georgia, you were talking about um, whether or not um, patience and empathy could be a form of neurodivergence, and I think it probably leads us down the path of discussing whether or not neurotypicality is uh, a real thing does it even exist is anybody the archetype of a uh, typical human experience and um you know i think emma watson's britishness um and you know maybe a performance of american perceptions of um the brits as quite reserved in many ways and very intelligent and you know whatever whatever all the stereotypes are um sort of you know that is that a form of is is britishness a form of neurodivergence from an american perspective i mean it just takes us down this path to uh deconstructing the idea of neurotypicality to the point where you know if we look close enough no one's going to be um archetypal but i think maybe that's not the point it's not the idea that there's actually actually are neurotypical people the point is that the concept of neurotypicality is such a dominant hegemonic force within culture that there is the sort of the us and the them um the sort of abled and the disabled and i guess it's really a 
ableism, which is uh, an, an, a, the, the, group, the grounding point for um, the concept of neurotypicality. And it's very important for us, you know, in, this, in the way that sort of whiteness and blackness is a sort of historical construct of difference uh, that extends way beyond uh, sort of just uh, the skin tone. It sort of means all sorts of things that have nothing really to do with anything other than history and context and attitudes that have developed through that. So, yeah, the sort of, I think it's quite useful to remind to remind myself about uh, speaking in ways that are sort of essential, you know, what is the essential nature of neurodiversity or neurotypicality and realize those concepts are actually quite fragile and temporary and fluid in many ways. You know, this is something that I, I, I've been thinking about a lot more recently in regards to myself, because I um, define myself as neurotypical. I, I, I don't define myself as neuro, neurodivergent. Um, but then I, I don't feel as if neurotypicality fits me either. Um, but it's precisely for that reason, because it, it doesn't ever fully fit any individual. Um, and it's it, it, it's it sort of exists more, as you're right, as a sort of sort of hegemonic societal thing um, to which neurodivergence can be uh, uh, refracted from or reflected on. And, um, but, but then again, I, I, you know, I, I, I would call myself neurotypical and I, I do so because I feel as if I have lived a life that has enjoyed the benefits of neurotypicality. You know, I've never had to, um, you know, I've never had any sort of significant neurodivergent difficulties that have affected me um and therefore i don't feel ethically that i can claim any sort of neurodivergence in a way but 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 knowing about these concepts knowing about neurodiversity knowing about neurodivergence knowing about neurotypicality has really allowed me to think about myself and other people in relation to where an individual sits in that complicated web um and and what the you know the kind of the affordances of of neurotypicality and what the, what they um uh <clears throat> what am i trying to say here what that kind of uh gives you as a uh, what privileges that gives you as an individual um and recognizing that and acknowledging that and and seeing that there needs to be um adjustments to that and uh, and uh, an evolution of that idea to in order to better incorporate those who who definitely don't fit that neurotypical paradigm um that's something that i'm constantly thinking about these days um and i think this is one of those films that that, that can really help you reflect on that because there is a a, a real broad sweep of different types of people in this film and you're kind of anchored by Barry and to a certain extent by Lena. Um, but, you know, you can also think about Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, the kind of the main villain who's only in a couple of scenes, but there's something extremely uh, domineering and terrifying about his character and, and about, uh, and it, he's the sort of person that you can instantly sort of think, yeah, we know who this guy is. He's 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 trouble. He's difficult. He's domineering. He's um, he's a big problem, um, and uh, thinks himself to be a really important person and a really kind of powerful person. 
Um, and and so and then I suppose you've also got some of the sort of sort of minor characters like the 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 woman that um, uh, Barry talks to on the on the sex chat line who who sort of initiates the scam with him. Um, and so there are, and and even the, the people he works with. One of the another interesting curious detail that I noticed um, uh, this time around as well was uh, when Barry first has an interaction with that that other character that he works with i'm not sure what the name of the character was now um but the one that he mainly interacts with at his workplace uh, who says in the, the in their first interaction says why are you wearing this suit and barry says sort of gives an ex a reason why he's wearing the suit saying he thinks it might feel more professional next time we see that character that character is also wearing a suit and and there's an interesting sort of moment there again of like oh okay there's 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 kind of diff there's a kinds of ex there are exchanges going on between these different characters that are subtly placed and i thought that was quite interesting because that that coworker of his always seems to uh, seems to be very um positive towards barry seems to be very encouraging sort of encourages him to go on holidays and um supports him even though he feels like he might be a little odd they still sort of work together seem to work together quite well and yeah there was a, a cute little moment where the the co-worker suddenly is wearing a suit just for just for one scene i thought okay so there's a kind of there's a, there is an exchange going on between between neurotypicality, neurodiversity, and different types of people thinking in different ways. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's one of the that's certainly something that this film do, does reflect upon. Um, if we sort of look at it in that way, I think. Um, I wanted to uh, just admit that this film has a very special place for me, not because of the film itself, but because it gets sampled in some music that I really love. Uh, so the shut up sort of exchange between Hoffman and Sandler. Um, Hoffman? No. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. The exchange between uh, Adam Sandler and Philip Seymour Hoffman um, is very intense and sort of uh, is a, in many ways a climactic moment in the sensory overload themes within the uh, narrative of the film. That gets sampled by this gabber breakcore uh, musician called Shitmat um, in a track called Shut Up from Full English Breakfast. And I think it's a really great sort of uh, musical extension of the aesthetics of this film and particularly neurodivergent aesthetics. Um, the whole album is very intense and sort of echoes some of the uh, mm, disordered experiences that are filtered through. Um, so I guess if anyone listening to this, they want to try <laughs> try out some interesting uh, audio aesthetics, yeah, have a look at Full English Breakfast by Shitmat. Um, I'll send you guys a link to it. It's, it's, it's genuinely horrible to listen to sometimes, but if you're in the right mood, for me, it's when I'm feeling very up. Uh, and I'm walking down the street, pounding the pavement. Uh, it works really well for me. <laughs> Definitely check that out. It sounds great. <clears throat> but the music is something that we've not really mentioned much, but it is something that is um, really important to this film. Um, uh, it's a very eclectic uh, score um, with some, you know, some some nice romantic, sweeping, melodic, orchestral pieces at, at some points, and then other points. 
particularly the more intense visual moments, a kind of almost amusical cacophony of all sorts of different beats and sounds and tones and things like what sounds like maybe a xylophone, some chimes, some uh, sounds of the environment that have perhaps been kind of looped in and 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 sort of woven in so sounds of the wind and sounds of um beeps and bleeps and uh, phones ringing and that kind of thing and it really adds just completely adds to that um that intensity that sensory intensity which is so important particularly to autism but also to a lot of other neurodivergences but certainly as a, a main feature of autism it just adds to that sort of overwhelm of sound um that is often experienced by autistic people of not being able to necessarily um concentrate when all of that is coming in but also being able to sort of hear absolutely everything and all of that coming together and sometimes that creating chaos and sometimes possibly that creating a kind of um a harmony i guess or a, a kind of atypical harmony but something that's that's got a, a rhythm to it or a beat to it or is just about controllable in a kind of harmonic sense but uh yeah, I thought I thought the soundtrack is it was a wonderful piece of work. I really did. Another thing I uh, wanted to mention in terms of the sound is is another one of those little details, but kind of hidden within kind of the little bits of the soundscape. There's um, people speaking and talking to Barry in the soundscape. So I think there's a moment where um, he's talking to Lance, his worker, and he goes to look at the pudding. And there's a kind of a voice, like a robotic voice that kind of goes, come here, Barry. Um, and it, and I didn't notice this the first time around, but I, I saw it, I heard it one time and I was looking for those moments throughout the film and they're just hidden everywhere. Like the, the world is quite lucid and it's speaking to him and he's uh, reacting to, to the a world that is kind of personified. Um, and another example of this, which I found quite strange, and I didn't know what to make of it at first, but during the credits, um, there's a dialogue of two robots speaking to each other in the audio. Um, and I didn't know what to make of that at first, but um, to me, it's it's kind of like the echoes of those romance films where, you know, it's it's quite formulaic. And this film kind of strives away from that so it's moving away from the depiction of oh they're robots because they're not quite you know normal you know the whole robot trope which is awful really but to me it it, it kind of it was it was the residue of, of of rom-coms that do abide by those formulas and don't strive to look at the complexities of of people through gender uh, and, and neurodivergence um, so yeah, I um, I just wanted to make that point because there's not it, it's it's very much a lot of the times it's hidden within the beats and the percussion, and it fits quite kind of a rhythm, so it's very easy to miss. Um, but it makes everything seem a lot more kind of it, yeah, like I say, lucid and dreamlike. Which yeah fits with the the kind of fairy tale narrative and also um, his kind of hypersensory um, interaction with the world. 
Right. Well, um, we're coming up to 12, so we should probably wind things down. Has anybody got anything, um, a final compelling point they must make before we wrap things up? I don't think so. Other than to say it's what an incredibly rich and amazing film this is. And, and um, it's been, it was a, a great choice, Georgia. I, I really enjoyed um, going back to it and, uh, and looking at it again, but it's, it's, it's a film that's so rich with so many little details and, and, uh, one of those curious films that's like never going to fully make make itself sense, you know, make complete sense of itself. And I think that's why I really love it because there's so much to interpret there, and there's so much to pick apart, and there's so much to see. Um, and it's definitely a film I would enthusiastically suggest people watch. Definitely. Um, although it was interesting, Alex, you mentioning your partner saying saying that they couldn't get through the thing, and 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 I did find that interesting because I was again I was thinking about Uncut Gems, the film um, Adam Sandler did recently, which is in some regards sort of similar to this film, and in other regards is really not. But um, that was a film I absolutely loved. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, and but also I know people who could couldn't get into that film at all and couldn't cope with it. Really stressful film, Uncut Gems, extremely stressful. But I found that I, I we haven't got talk, time to talk about it now. But I found that interesting. The idea that some films for some people may well be unwatchable for these reasons. And I find that that's quite an interesting, and it's interesting that Punch Drunk Love maybe fits into that category as well. Um, but yeah, but no, what a, what a wonderful and rich and amazing film. Yeah, yeah. 